10, 19 to 22, both of these texts, I just want you to see how they speak of coming to the Lord with both joy and confidence, because this morning we're going to be talking about how we should be taking the Lord's Supper. And so these first two texts in Hebrews are going to remind us, I believe, that we are to take the Lord's Supper with joy because of the great salvation that has been won. Then Sam will come up for us and read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17 to 31, which is a more detailed description that the Apostle Paul has written for us about how we should take the Lord's Supper. And then lastly, in Psalm 51, 7 to 12, Nicholas will read for us about how we all have this posture in our hearts where we know we're sinners, yet we don't want to be. And so we have this uh, divided aspect of our personality. And you'll see that very clearly in Psalm 51, someone crying out for God's mercy. And this will also uh, help us to see how we as sinners can rightly take the Lord's Supper. So, uh, Lisa, you can come forward now and read for us from Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 24. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they would not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the perfect righteous made perfect, to Jesus, meditator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 1 Corinthians 11, 17-31. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Psalm 51, 7-12 Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Well, as I address the question this morning of how we are to take the Lord's Supper, let me just offer first a word of clarification. When I address the question of how, I'm primarily asking the question of what sort of emotional or spiritual state should we be in as we take the Lord's Supper. The other questions of how are obviously things like what words to use, what bread, what wine at the same time, separately, all those questions. And those are important questions, but those are not the questions that I'm going to address in the message this morning. And so, how should we take of the Lord's Supper? Meaning, what frame of mind, what emotional tenor, what posture of heart do we come to the Lord's Supper with? Now, as I go into that, there are two preliminary matters that I first want to address. First, what is the importance of this question? Although I do think it is important in itself for Christians to know how to take the Lord's Supper The application of this sermon would be very limited if it were only that one small slice of the Christian life that it would help us with. It would still be important, I would say, but just not as much. And yet, I think that the answer to this question covers much more than just the Lord's Supper itself. Because, as as I've been striving to point out in every message on the Lord's Supper, to come to the Lord's Supper is ultimately to come to Jesus Christ in the gospel. The Lord's Supper is not simply this strange ritual that Christians carry on because Jesus told us to. No, the Lord's Supper is representative of the work of Jesus that gives us gospel hope. And the eating of the Lord's Supper is representative of our believing, our trusting in Him. So the Lord's Supper is actually the physical manifestation of a deeper, profoundly spiritual reality. Again, this is a big reason why I want us to take the Lord's Supper every week, because I want us to have this regular bodily practice of coming to Jesus that will, Lord willing, train our souls to do the same thing day in and day out. And if you're a non-Christian and you're here with us this morning, I really don't want you to be lost at the outset, so let me just make clear that when I talk about coming to Jesus in the gospel What I mean is that Jesus died, that is, he took the punishment for our sins so that we could be forgiven by God and welcomed into his presence. And in order to receive this forgiveness and know God, we must trust that Jesus did exactly this for us. 
And so I encourage you this morning, even right now, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus, trusted in his death for you, to trust in him and receive the forgiveness for your sins. Believing this gospel is the only way to have life, to receive mercy from God. And so again, in the Lord's Supper, this eating symbolizes that faith. It symbolizes that trust. And so as we eat, we are to trust in this bread and wine as we trust in the body and blood of Jesus to cover all of our sins. And so we should all delight to take the Lord's Supper as the application of Christ's sacrifice for us. So that's the first preliminary matter, is just see how broad the scope is of what I'm talking about this morning. The second preliminary matter that I feel like I have to address is simply, how should we rightly conceive of emotions? How do our emotions work? I realize that this is a very large question and could probably be a whole series of teachings in itself, but I'm only going to hit one point on this this morning that I think needs to be corrected if we are going to be able to come to the Lord's Supper or indeed come to the Lord himself rightly. The problem, as I see it, is that often in our culture today, people simplistically think about the emotions as something like a a speed gauge in a car, where on one side, maybe on the side that says, you know, 120 miles per hour, you have the emotions like passionate, energetic, fiery, invested, right? That's where, where we all want to go. And then on the other side, down where it says zero miles per hour, you have things like bored, apathetic, disinterested, uncaring. And then somewhere in between those two ends of the spectrum, you have feelings like sad or happy or angry or fearful. And we think that this is essentially how our emotions work, that at any given point, we're in one place on this speed dial. And for most people, It's always the higher the better, right? We're always trying to get to that end of the spectrum where we feel totally passionate, totally fired up about life. And if you're not there yet, and if you're just happy, then, well, you keep working to get higher up. I think another popular depiction of this idea is the uh, the Pixar movie Inside Out. I'm sure many of you have seen it, but in this movie as well, it portrays this notion that we really only feel one thing at a time. In this movie, the main character has five different emotions in her head, and then there's one control panel, and it's like each emotion is always fighting for the control panel, and then one emotion will take control, and then out drops a little marble, which is the emotion that the person feels. And so what it portrays is that at any given time, this person might be angry, and then they swing over to joyful, and then they swing over to fearful, that there's only one emotion that we bounce between at any given time. Well, I think given the the biblical data and even just given the experience of my own heart, I don't think that this is the best way to conceive of our emotions, that we only feel one thing at a time and we're always trying to feel better than we did the day before. The best image that I can come up with for how our emotions work is to, to picture your heart as a room that's large enough to cover a whole city block. Now, on that block... Picture factories of different shapes and sizes, but every factory in this block is producing smoke to some degree, right? That's just what factories do. You have the smoke, the smoke coming out of the smoke tap. Now, there are lots of factories in this block. Maybe there's 50 small factories in this, in this block 
of your heart. And again, all of these factories are sending smoke up into the air. And some of these factories may be larger than other factories. Some factories may have very large smoke stacks with lots of smoke coming up. Other factories may be very small and only have little puffs of smoke going up. But either way, all of these factories are producing this smoke in the room of your heart. Now, some of these factories are known and are quite large factories like happiness or sadness or anger or love or fear, those really big emotions that we're all aware of. And yet other factories are going to be smaller and less remarked upon. Perhaps things like wonder or delight or guilt or shame or disgust and many more. I don't think anybody has a full taxonomy of all the possible emotions that we could feel. It's almost like there's innumerable factories in our hearts. And so in each person, these factories are going to be different sizes. One person may have a very large fear factory pumping out smoke in their heart. And another person may have a very large happiness factory pumping out smoke into their heart. God makes each of us different and our own cultivation of our own hearts will either shrink these factories or make them larger. Now, the point of this image is to say that your emotional state is essentially the air quality in that room. If somebody asks you, how are you feeling? I think what you are essentially doing as a human being is you're trying to take an air sample in that room of your heart, and you're trying to say something about that air sample. And again, in that air sample, there's going to be many different emotions at work. There's no one control panel in your heart releasing only one emotion at a time. Rather, you're continually producing a whole range of emotions at any given point in time. At the same time, you might be sad on the one hand for an argument that you had with your spouse the last night, but then delighted on the other hand about a good cup of coffee that you're having that morning, and on the other hand, disgusted that your kids left their wet socks on the carpet on the floor all night. And so you have all these emotions just mixing in your heart at one time. It's not just choosing one thing or the other that you're feeling. (laughs) That's right. And all of these emotions get mixed together in your heart, and you feel them all at the same time. And again, some emotions will be heavier or weightier than others. They will matter more to you based on what you care more about. So, for example, hopefully you will care more about your salvation in the gospel than you care about the wet socks on the floor. So hopefully the wet socks on the floor are not going to steal all of your joy about the fact that you are saved. And so some emotions will be bigger than others. Some factories are bigger than others. But nevertheless, this is the state of all of our hearts. We all have all of these divided emotions going on at any one time in our hearts. I assume even as you're sitting here right now, each of you probably has dozens of different emotions being pumped out into your heart as I speak. Some related to what I'm saying right now. Some, I'm sure, from distant past or from yesterday or any other time. The reality or this reality, the fact that our hearts always contain many different emotions, is why Scripture speaks so much of the word purity, and why Scripture uses the image of a refiner's fire for what God wants to do with us. That's why just before the message, I had us read Psalm 51, 7 to 12. Just listen to the words of purification that we hear in this psalm. It begins in verse 12, "'Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean.'" Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Now, what does it mean to purge something? Well, it means that when you purge something, you have some bad elements in something that you're trying to remove. And that's just a picture of our hearts. All of us have some emotions in our hearts that are very good and right emotions, but we have other emotions in our hearts that need to be purged from us. Hear the psalmist go on. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Just pause for a moment and consider the emotional complexity of that statement there. The bones that you have broken rejoice. He is saying that there are things within my heart, there are emotions I have that feel broken, and I want those same emotions to be turned into praise, into rejoicing. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Again, just consider this is somebody saying this who recognizes my heart is not clean right now. When they take that air sample in their heart, they recognize that a lot of their emotions are really messed up. A lot of their emotions are driven by self-concern and self-interest and not by the things of God. And so what are they asking for? They're saying, God, enlarge these factories in my heart so that I can have a clean heart, so that the air sample in my heart is a good air sample. He continues on. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And so in the end, he's praying, Lord, give me joy in my heart. I know that's the emotion that I should have, is joy in my salvation. He's saying, I'm not feeling that right now. Right now I'm feeling guilty. I'm feeling terrible. I'm feeling all the bad things that I've done. And yet I want to feel the joy of my salvation. So give that to me, Lord. And so notice how much of this is a, is a plea for a clean inner space. Obviously, on the one hand, it is a cry of a heart that already has some measure of purity, right? Otherwise, this heart would not cry out to God in the first place if they were totally corrupt. But this heart is also very conscious of its dirt, very conscious of its sin. And this is why he is crying out to God for a clean heart. We have some factories in our hearts that God just loves, When we delight in our children, God loves to see that emotion in our hearts. When we feel amazed at God's glory, God wants us to have that. When we feel gratitude for all that God has done for us, for all that others have done for us, God is so glad that we feel that way. But then there are also factories in our hearts that are putting out terrible, acrid smoke. The feeling of superiority that we have when we realize that we think we're better than other people. The selfish pleasure that we feel when we get to enjoy something that others don't. The anger that we feel when someone else has just taken our pride down a notch. These factories are also at work in our hearts right alongside those factories of godly and good emotions. And so this prayer to have a clean heart applies to every one of us. James 4.8 puts it, Very simply, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, beloved, this is all of us to some degree. We are all double-minded to some degree, having one heart in us that longs for God, that loves the things of the Lord, and yet having this other heart right alongside that seems like it couldn't care less for spiritual things. It couldn't care less for God. And so this, 
I propose, is how all of our hearts work. Having that terrible smoke being pumped out right alongside the good factories producing good things. Okay, so why does all of this matter? I suggest that it matters for how we come to the Lord himself and for how we come to the Lord's Supper for two big reasons. The first big reason is that coming to the Lord and coming to the Lord's Supper is not an emotionally simple task. In other words, what I'm going to advocate for is that we should feel multiple things when we come to the Lord. We should feel multiple things when we come to the Lord's Supper. I can't say there's just one emotion that you should have when you come to the Lord's Supper. There's one emotion you should have when you come to the Lord. And if you feel like you should just be having one emotion whenever you come to the Lord, well, then you are going to feel guilty to whatever extent you don't have that one emotion and to whatever extent you feel your heart straying in other directions. And so I think that this is an unrealistic and unhelpful standard. We have to understand that many emotions should be at work in our hearts when we come to the Lord. And the second reason why this is important is because this helps us to understand how none of us will ever be completely pure. If we could only feel one emotion at a time, well, then it would be the case, would it not, that in those times when we're feeling godly emotions, well, then we're 100% pure because our emotion is godly. But then when our hearts change, well, then we're just terrible because our hearts have changed. But again, this isn't the reality of our hearts. We have to understand that all of us who are saved will have some godly desires in our hearts, and we will all have some ungodly desires or emotions in our hearts. And so when we understand these things, this will help us to take the Lord's Supper rightly. So I now want to go to 1 Corinthians 11, which again, I think gives us the most detailed instructions in the New Testament for how we are to take the Lord's Supper, with what spirit we are to take the Lord's Supper. And I want to look at it through the lens of this truth that I've just explained. So I'm going to read the whole passage again that we read at the beginning. I know it's a bit long, but I think it's important to read this whole passage together because we have verses here that are very easy to take out of context and they're very often taken out of context. So 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged." 
Now, the danger I see in interpreting this text, the danger that I know I myself heard as a child growing up, is isolating verses 27 and 28 from the surrounding context. So, just look at verses 27 and 28. Again, all by themselves, they simply say, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, if you were to read these two verses in isolation and you weren't to read it with reference to what comes before or what comes after, I think the picture you would get of coming to the Lord's Supper is something like the picture of the sword and the stone, right? That only the one who is worthy may draw the sword from the stone. Because it says that don't eat in an unworthy manner and let a person examine himself. And so the picture that it gives of how we are to approach the Lord's Supper is that, well, we're supposed to be doing a lot of introspection, you know, thinking about ourselves, thinking about all of our sins, and then if we can count ourselves worthy, well, then we're allowed to come and we're allowed to eat the Lord's Supper. And of course, strangely, usually we are supposed to count ourselves worthy to come to the Lord's Supper, which is odd, is it not? Because the consistent message of Scripture is always that we can never be worthy of coming to the Lord. And so, again, if we must first discern whether we are worthy enough to eat of the Lord's Supper, then we must always answer in the same way, no. We can never be good enough to eat the Lord's Supper. Again, whenever we come to the Lord's Supper, we will always have, we will never have the purity of heart that we long to have. We will always have these factories in us producing good things and bad things. And so we can never be entirely pure as we come to the Lord's Supper. So I do not believe that that is what this passage is teaching us. And so if that's not, if it's not teaching us that, what does it mean? Well, again, we must read what comes before and we must read what, af- what comes after these verses in order to understand these verses. It's always dangerous to read any verse out of context, and context is always the best guide to meaning. And so what comes before this warning to examine yourself and to eat in a worthy way? Well, what comes before is this description of how the church in Corinth was treating the Lord's Supper like it was basically a frat party, right? Some would come and get drunk. Others would come. They wouldn't have anything. They just thought it was a big old party time. They didn't think that this was a very serious occasion. That's what comes before. And then what comes after? Well, verse 29, the the following verse says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Notice first the the linking word at the beginning of verse 29, that word for. That tells us that this statement is just an extension, a further grounding of the previous statement to examine ourselves and to eat the supper in a worthy way. And so... What was the church in Corinth doing wrong? Well, what it was doing wrong is it wasn't discerning the body, as verse 29 says, or judging the body. This is just another way to talk about the examination that must take place. Well, discerning the body doesn't sound much like introspection that I thought we were supposed to do. What does it mean to discern the body? Well, again, in the context, the body that Paul is talking about is the body of Christ in the Lord's Supper. In other words, whenever you eat and drink the Lord's Supper, 
you ought to truly consider this is the body of Christ broken for me. And this is the blood of Christ shed for me. You shouldn't eat this bread or drink this cup as if it were everyday food, as if it were no big deal. It is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is no time to selfishly enjoy as much wine, as much bread as you can, to treat it like it's just a really fun party time when all of us are hanging out. That is not discerning the body. That's treating the bread and wine as if it's any other bread and wine. But again, when we eat this bread and when we drink this cup, we are drinking it as the body and blood of our Lord. Therefore, I conclude that the examination that we are supposed to do that verse 28 speaks of and the worthiness that we are supposed to have that verse 27 speaks of is simply this. We are supposed to ask ourselves the question of whether we truly believe that God is present and working in this bread and in this cup. This is the examination that we must perform. And to eat and drink worthily, we must simply believe this. That the Lord's Supper truly is an application to our hearts of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this, as I said, leads us to experiencing the Lord's Supper with more complexity of emotions that I think it is right for us to have as we come to the Lord at his table. So we shouldn't just be sad over sin and remorseful about the bad things that we've done. That we done. We should ask ourselves, what, what should I feel? What would I feel if I truly believed that this bread and this cup were the application of Christ's sacrifice to me? What would the proper emotional response to that reality be? Well, Again, just like I don't know that we can number all the factories in our hearts, I don't know that we could ever enumerate every last response that we should have to this glorious gospel message that in the death of Christ we have died and in the resurrection of Christ we have been raised up. It should cause an explosion in our hearts that changes everything, that changes every last emotion that we have. But in this closing time of this message, let me just suggest three dominant themes from the New Testament, three dominant emotions we should feel as we eat the bread and drink the cup, three dominant emotions we should feel whenever we come to the Lord. When we come to the table and we believe truly that we are participating, that we are eating of the sacrifice of Christ performed for us, then we will feel joy in our hearts We will feel sobriety or gravity about the state of of our souls and we will feel holy fear of God. Holy fear of God. So that's where I'm going now. The first, and I believe the dominant emotion we should feel, is joy. Or if you want to call it happiness, that's also okay with me. And to look at this, I want to turn to that first text that we read together, Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. Now what's going on in Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, is the author of Hebrews is contrasting for us the old covenant with the new. The old covenant where sacrifices were made daily of animals in order to 
attain the forgiveness of sins where they had to keep all the law of God versus the new covenant where we are under the blood of Christ as the once and final sacrifice and where we are not under the law, but we are bound simply by the love of Christ. And so Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18, says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now here, the author of Hebrews is clearly talking specifically about Mount Sinai, where the people of Israel had just come out of Egypt, and now they were at the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses was going up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And this is a description of what they felt. Just terror, fear at the Lord. They couldn't even touch the mountain. Otherwise, they would die. And now hear how it's contrasted with the New Covenant, beginning in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Notice how he just compounds item upon item of reasons why we should celebrate now that we are in the new covenant. Festal gathering with the angels. Perfect garments. Consciences that are washed clean. Blood sprinkled on us that makes us pure. Beloved, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive all of these things by faith alone. And so the most immediate response in our hearts should be the response of joy. This is why Peter himself rightly wrote that though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Beloved, there is no greater joy that we could know, that we should know on this earth than the joy of knowing Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers. Just think of the parable that Jesus told of the treasure that was hidden in the field. And you remember how that goes, that the man found the treasure hidden in the field, which is a metaphor for this gospel hope that we have, the salvation that God offers in Jesus Christ. And what does it say that he did? In his joy, he sold everything that he had, and he bought that field so he could get that treasure. Beloved, when we come to the Lord's table and we remember that I am being united to Jesus Christ, to his body, to his blood, to his death, we rejoice because we recognize of how great a salvation that we have. Indeed, this is why in the way that we now celebrate the Lord's Supper, I don't want it just to be this small little drop of juice or this small little crumb of bread. Because this is supposed to be an occasion for rejoicing, for celebration that we are one with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is what we recognize when we eat this supper. And so, beloved, may we dance with joy as we eat. Even if we are not a people that feel comfortable standing up and dancing, may we dance in our hearts that we get to experience this union with Jesus Christ that offers us salvation for all eternity. 
But, as I said, our emotions are complex, and I don't think we can say there's only one thing that we should feel when we come to the Lord. And so as much as I hope that the biggest factory in your heart as you come to the Lord is this joy factory, just pumping out these huge plumes of joy into your heart, there are other emotions that we should feel also. And this next one may seem like a contradiction, but I don't believe that it is. And that is that as we come to the Lord's table, we should also feel heavy, or we should feel gravity is another word that people use. Or to use an old-fashioned word, we should feel grave or sober. This is the emotion that I see writ large over most of 1 Corinthians 11. Again, the sin of the church in Corinth was treating the elements of the body and blood as if they were just a frivolous thing, just a way to have a good time. And certainly there is a way for us human beings to experience joy where we do think, ah, well, now it is just a time to party. And yet the joy that we have in the Lord is not a frivolous kind of joy. It is a deep and weighty kind of joy. And so, beloved, we must recognize that the body of Christ that we eat was a body that was brutally broken and killed for us. And the blood of Christ that we drink was an innocent man who was slaughtered for you. The cost of our salvation, beloved, was incalculably enormous. One thing that my family and I like to do every Memorial Day is we go to some cemetery where someone is buried who was killed in action. Right here around the South Hills of Pittsburgh, there's actually two uh, Medal of Honor recipients that are buried. And so my, family's, my family likes to go and to recognize that person who is killed in action. We usually read the Medal of Honor citation just to remember what they did. And there's only one emotion that you can have as you go to a place like a cemetery and you realize the brave sacrifice that was made simply so we could live here today with the freedom and prosperity that we enjoy. And that feeling is a feeling of gravity. It is a feeling of weight, like suddenly my life has a lot more meaning than I thought it had before I came into this place. Before I thought that my life was just about me, just about having a good time, enjoying myself. But now I see that I am here today and I even have what I have not just by virtue of my own presence, my own being here, but by virtue of many who came before, some who even gave their lives so that we could live here today and have what we have. And so there's a certain weight that's given to our lives. You can ask anyone who's been in combat, who lost brothers or sisters in arms, that suddenly they feel like the rest of their life has a purpose that they did not know before because they realize that they only made it out because someone else died for them. Beloved, if we can feel that kind of weight about simply being an American, how much more weight should we feel when we consider that the death of the Son of God was willingly paid in order to purchase us? Beloved, our salvation is not a light and frivolous thing. It is something that cost the Son of God his life. And he will forever wear those wounds in all eternity. Even when we see him face to face one day, Revelation tells us that we will still see his nail-pierced hands and his nail-pierced feet for us. And therefore, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we don't come to it in a frivolous way. 
We come to it with a sense of, Lord, you died for me. And I understand the weight of that. And then the last emotion that I want to offer to you as a fitting response in the Lord's Supper is a feeling of holy fear. Holy fear. Again, we come to the Lord, we have great joy. We come to the Lord, we have the sense of gravity because of the price that was paid. And these things also produce in us a holy fear. Now, when I say holy fear, I don't mean dread or terror. I mean that you just recognize the power of the one who we are bound to by this blood and this body. In the verses of Hebrews that immediately follow the ones I just read about this festal gathering, about the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, comes Hebrews 12, starting in verse 25. Notice this other emotion that comes into play. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he is promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Beloved, when we come to the Lord in the Lord's Supper, the Lord does not change who he most fundamentally is. And that Lord is a consuming fire. He is a Lord of might. He is a Lord who will shake the heavens and the earth so that only those things that he desires to remain will remain. And therefore, when we take the Lord's Supper, it is indeed right for us to tremble. To consider that this is the God who is examining our hearts even as we eat. That this is the God who we are saying, yes, I want to be joined to you for all eternity. Beloved, we should tremble with a holy fear when we understand the might and the power and the majesty of the God that we come to in Jesus Christ. Again, we are not afraid We do not need to worry that he will harm us. Yet nevertheless, we are in awe and we have reverence, as the author of Hebrews says, as we come to this Lord who is a consuming fire. And so if you feel you are not ready to come to that Lord, then beloved, I also would say that you are not yet ready to come to that table. And so beloved, as we come to the Lord's Supper, even this morning, And from here on out, I encourage you, don't only look within. Don't only do introspection to say, am I really worthy? Have I done anything really wrong this week that should keep me from the Lord's table? Rather, look at the body. Discern the body, as it says in 1 Corinthians. See that the bread really is Christ broken for you. See that the cup really is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And when you see that, Rejoice with all the benefits that this purchases for you, but also understand the gravity and the fear that we have in coming to the living God. Let me pray for us now, and then I welcome your prayers for us as well. 
Heavenly Father, as the song that we sing says, uh, a thousand tongues are not enough to give our thanks and our praise to you for the great gift that you have given in your Son. Lord, we will indeed rejoice for all of eternity. We will feast and celebrate and dance for all of eternity, for all that Christ has done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that even as we take the Lord's Supper here at Providence, that you would help it to truly be an occasion of joy. Lord, that we would know that the price has been fully paid, that there's nothing left for us to do, and that we can therefore celebrate in your presence. Lord, would you do this in our midst again this morning and always, that we may have joy in our salvation.